Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. To master anything, whether it's actually playing chess, training for and becoming an American Ninja Warrior, or climbing to the top of your chosen career, you have to know that failure is a huge part of the equation. And in fact, failure should be embraced as part of the fun of achieving any difficult goal in life. Chess is not just a game, however. It's also a mindset that I believe you must adopt if you want to achieve anything difficult. Because frankly, nothing worthwhile is easy. And doing hard things requires the right strategy, which is why one of the key mindsets that I share at the very beginning with all of the students of my coaching and mentorship program is that you need to play chess with your goals instead of checkers. Well, today, after a follow-up to all of the conversations that I have with Michelle Tesoro, I'm now going to share with you a very fun, in-depth, and candid conversation with my friend and fellow entrepreneur, Misha Tenenbaum. Before Misha founded Edit Stock and Edit Mentor, he was a film and television editor in AE, just like us, who edited shows for the Speed Channel, Food Network, as well as indie films, and he also worked as an assistant editor on shows like American Horror Story, Jobs, which was the biopic about Steve Jobs that starred Ashton Kutcher, he worked on the Fox show Wayward Pines, and he worked on Quarry for Cinemax. However, Instead of talking about Hollywood in this conversation, instead, Misha and I dive deep into the meta skills necessary to achieve near impossible, read ridiculous goals. Misha grew up learning chess, and he spent several years also in his adulthood climbing the ranks in the chess world. We discuss how the skills that he has learned from spending years earning an 1800 plus class A ranking, and don't worry, we're going to discuss what that means in the episode how all of that has transferred into the many other aspects of his life, his career, and building a business. We also discussed the strange transformation that takes place along the path towards any goal where achieving that goal becomes irrelevant because you realize the journey is so much more valuable and more rewarding. Whether or not you have any interest in the actual game of chess whatsoever, and as a huge spoiler alert, I can barely play myself, There is a wealth of valuable information in this conversation that can help you apply a smarter strategy to achieving your own goals and mastering the art of failure along the way. All right, without further ado, my conversation with editor, entrepreneur, and chess player, Misha Tenenbaum. I'm here today with Misha Tenenbaum, who is the founder and CEO of EditStock, which is a company that provides unedited footage from films that people can practice and edit with. And you're also now into a new program called Edit Mentor, which is a software application that teaches the world how to communicate and tell their stories with video. 
Misha, I have a feeling that you and I are going to be geeking out a lot today on a lot of very interesting topics. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics today, <laughs> which is the game of chess. Oh, I assumed you were going to say Trello because we could do a three part <laughs> interview just on talking about Trello, which is its own version of chess in the productivity world. Um, that's a that's a totally uh, new conversation that we could have. But yes, we're going to talk all about chess, but how it applies to the game of life. So recently, as my audience may know, if they're regular listeners, I just concluded a two-part interview that I did with Michelle Tesoro, who is the lead and main editor for The Queen's Gambit. We talked all about chess and how it applies to the game of life. And the caveat to that conversation is we both basically said, I don't really know how to play chess, but I love the idea of it. And I'm kind of in that, that same position where one of the core key mindsets that I teach all of my students in my program is that they have to look at their career, they have to look at their goals, and they have to look at life like it's a game of chess instead of a game of checkers. Because I really believe you have to think 7, 10, 15 moves ahead, and it can't just be about how do I make the next checkers move? How do I figure out a way that I can, I don't know, lose five pounds fast, or that I can just find a couple of productivity apps to allow me to get a couple more things done during the day, or I'm just going to chase after the next gig because I need a paycheck. I want people to be able to step back, look at the whole chessboard, and strategize their life but the hard thing for me is that I don't actually play chess. Yeah. I know the basics. And one of the things I love about the game of chess is that it takes a minute to learn, but a lifetime to master. Yeah. I could sit down and I could teach my eight-year-old daughter how to play chess in about 10 minutes. Here's what this piece does. It moves this way. It moves that way. My brother did the same thing for me when I was about that age. Anybody can play it. There's a very low barrier of entry. But you can dedicate your whole life to nothing but playing chess. And I love it when you can go that deep with something. So I want to talk to an actual chess aficionado, somebody that has lived it for most of their life, and better understand how I, how my students, and how anybody listening can take the concepts of chess and apply it to whatever their goal in life might be. So let's just start with a little bit of background. Tell me why I'm talking to you about chess. Okay. All right, you're going to love this story. It, it is actually editing related in a very in a, in a small way in the beginning. Uh, first of all, I'm Russian and Jewish, so you ha like playing chess. Like I played chess with my father. Like my, everyone, you know, everyone that I know uh, plays chess. When I was a kid, I had chess lessons, but I didn't really understand or appreciate what I was learning at the time. You know, I liked it when I was young, but then I had a long gap where I didn't play or didn't play very much. And for several years, when I was like working and kind of getting close to burning out, like between the ages of 26 and 30, um, I like had this, you know, I'm going to do something for myself someday. I'm going to like learn this game. And so when I turned 30, I went to a chess club for the first time in my life. And I played a game against a random person at the club who was better than me and beat me. Um, and that was fine. And it was fun. Just the same kind of joy that anyone would get out of any, you know, game they enjoy. But then we had an international master, which is a very high ranking, like very tough to achieve uh, ranking. Took my game, put it on the board, and we all sat around in a circle and he went through it. And the level of understanding and detail that he went through, it like, it blew my mind that there was so much in there. And from that moment, I just became obsessed. And everyone out there who like, who plays chess, you know, fairly regularly, like I cannot stop playing. Even to this day, I play like probably 20 games a day. Um, it, it is just when you play a game, and I used it on my weekends to fully leave work behind. Because when you are playing chess, there is nothing else you can concentrate on. If you do, you will just lose immediately. You know, it requires all of your focus, all of your attention, all, and there has to be, and there's such an evolution, like a personal evolution that happens as you get better. I, I don't want to go too far without giving you an opportunity to jump in. No, well, first of all, you don't need to wait for an opportunity for me to jump in. Like I told you before we started, all I have to do is say, welcome, Misha. And it's the, the podcast is yours, right? I don't have to do any work. That's why I love having you on the show. But I think that one of the things that's so interesting to me is that you grew up 
and chess was just a part of your life. The, when you were explaining that, I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of what it was like growing up in Northern Wisconsin, where you just kind of have to wear a cheese head and you follow football and you play it and you played in school. And even if you don't like it, you just do it. I would never see chess as that. And, and where I grew up in my upbringing, chess was the farthest thing that anybody ever would have done. But because of your upbringing, it was just kind of part of who you became, but you didn't really get into it until 30, which I didn't realize. I would have assumed that you got into it maybe in like high school when a lot of kids get into it. We had a chess club in high school. One of my big regrets was that I didn't play. My cousin played in it. I used to play against my cousin uh, all the time. So one of the things that I love, so so a lot of people describe it as, you know, it's a game of strategy, right? Which is true. But everyone feels like the strategy begins like the minute you sit down at the board. And actually, it's all the work leading up to the minute you sit down at the board because it's impossible for anyone to be good at it right away. No one is. And and these like you can be a child prodigy and be good at a very young age, but those kids are putting in thousands of hours of study. That was something that I learned very quickly was being 30 I was playing in a chess club against six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and losing a lot. And at first, you know, my ego was bruised and I'm just like, I'm an adult, but I'm smarter than these kids. And it just isn't about that. It really isn't. You know, you sit down on a board, you really have to have what you would call like in meditation, the, the beginner's mind. You just have to be open and not beat yourself up because chess is this like brutal game where you could be winning for hours working just just hard you know hard and make one little tiny mistake and lose the game and you just have to you have to learn like perseverance being calm and like putting aside emotion and looking at every situation as if it's a brand new one you know every move is a new start and you just have to let go of your ego and let go of like you know, I, I've learned a lot of things from seven-year-olds playing chess against them. I'm glad that I had the, those experiences. Now, you said that most people assume it's a game of strategy, which obviously it is a game of strategy. And you look at a game of checkers and, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a jump or a double jump. But you just you kind of play it as it is. And maybe you see a couple moves ahead. And obviously – Chess is more thinking, well, this is kind of the general approach that I want to take. Maybe it's a more offensive approach. Maybe it's a more defensive approach. But correct me if I'm wrong, and this is mostly just because I spent seven hours watching the Queen's Gambit. So I am, of course, now an expert at chess. Um, But it seems to me that it's largely also a game of being really good at recognizing patterns. Yeah, a lot of pattern recognition and being able to see different shapes and outcomes just by looking at the placement of pieces. That's right. Actually, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the the experiment where if you were to put a uh, picture of a real game of an actual, you know, position from a real game, put it on a bus and just drive it by a chess player, they could take the pieces and recreate it on the board. But if you were to put the pieces in a fake position that isn't from a real game, they would have a hard time. They, they wouldn't be able to. They, they'd actually fall into the same limits that everyone's you know, mind inputs are, whatever it is, the seven spaces, however many numbers you can remember in your head, like everyone would be the same. It's the pattern recognition because, for example, a castled king, you know where the three pawns are in front of them, you know where the rook is, you know where the king is, you chunk that knowledge you know, and that does save you um, a lot of time. Like you might even say in a, in a closed, I know this isn't going to make much sense, but like in a closed Sicilian uh, defense, if white ever gets to play D4, then they're going to like open the center. So like the whole game, you're like looking at this one move and you know that it's a pattern that emerges in this type of setup that you're always on the lookout for where, because you have experience. Whereas a beginner might not see that move coming. In fact, that's why a lot of beginners get embarrassed really quickly because they miss something that is such an obvious, simple tactic that like when you're experienced, you know to watch out for, but when you're new, it seems like a bolt of lightning. 
One of the things that I kept thinking about watching the Queen's Gambit, and I know this certainly isn't true about chess, but one could make the assumption, well, if it's just about pattern recognition, wouldn't it be the person that has the best memory that becomes the best chess player? If I just go through all the books and I look at all the pictures and I say, if all the pieces are in this arrangement, I do X. And if all the pieces are in this arrangement, I do Y or I do Z. Why can't I just get by in a game of chess with a really good photographic memory and just reading all the books and remembering all the positions? You, you can do pretty well, actually. <laughs> you won't get to the top like that, but you can do pretty well. And the there is a, so chess, like the game itself is broken up into sections. There's an opening part, there's a middle game part, and then there's an end game part. And with the end game, and so the, the parts are broken up like this. All the pieces are on the board, that's the opening. When the king is castled and safe and all the pieces are out, that's the middle game. And then the end game starts when the queens are traded off the board. Okay. Now, normally in the end game, there's very few pieces. And there are actually what are called uh, tables. So if you're a, if you have a position set up with seven pieces or less, any seven, the game is actually solvable. I mean, there is a correct way to play that will have a definite result. Now, even with seven pieces, there's millions of choices. So the chances of you knowing those tables is rare, but the best players in the world do know them and do practice them. And it's the same in the beginning of the game where there are moves you can memorize in the beginning of a game that will give you an advantage. And that's that studying at home. But if you don't understand the reason why the strategy and the ta- and you never study the tactics behind why those positions are set up the way they are, you definitely will be surprised and you definitely will lose games, even to beginners who don't know what they're supposed to do, in quotes. They just make a random move, and now all of a sudden you're out of your preparation, right? Because they're not doing the thing that you memorized. Um, so there is actually a component to it. So what's the difference then between you have one kid that starts at uh, six years old and he's practicing for 50 hours a week and he does that for years, and you have kid B that's doing the same thing? They're not both going to be exactly the same level. They're probably going to be close because a lot of it's based on pattern recognition and memory and shapes and everything else. But ultimately, I believe with anything, and again, for anybody listening that's saying, well, what does this have to do with anything outside of chess? Trust me, we're going to get there. We're going to get to the bigger picture, but I want to just kind of break down the fundamentals. What's the difference between somebody that just reads the books, knows the pictures, knows the patterns, and somebody that just intuitively becomes a great chess player? What are some of the differences for those that really, really succeed? So first, just I, I want to give you a scale so that we're not talking about like what is good, what is great. There is actually an objective measure of this, and that's a thing called a rating. So your your skill level and chess, there's a lot of like egotism in chess based around your rating, which now I find kind of laughable. But when I started, I took it very, very seriously and very personally. And, and it's part of that is because you set goals. But so I'm just going to go through the rankings really quick. Okay. So a thousand or less is like you're a total beginner little kid. Most people are a thousand or less in the, in the real world. People who study a little bit, like just get the basic concepts. They're like about 1200. And then you're like a person who studies. You're pretty good. Like you could play in high school. You're a 1400. And then 1600, so every 200 points, it's a new level. It actually goes D, C, B, A. At uh, 1600, you're a B player. And you're like, you're not horrible anymore. You're kind of average. You're going to beat any guy on the street, but you're not in the club. You're going to be average. Then 1800 is like, you're the best of the average people. And then 2000 is you're an expert. Now, any the theory is, anyone can get to the level of expert with enough practice. And that's always been my goal. And I, I've got to go back and, and get there. I got to 1850 before I had it. And then um, it's a whole long thing, but basically it took me two years to get to 1850 from 1700. And I got there, then I lost 50 rating points like in a month. And I was like, I need a break from this or my head's going to explode. Um, because that that's what it takes. You know, it's like, it's easy to go from a 10 minute mile to an eight minute mile it's hard to go from an eight minute mile to a six minute mile. And the difference between six minutes and four minutes is world-class. Okay. So at, at 2000, you're like the best that a normal person can get to. 
At 2200, you're considered a master. It's actually a ranking. You're going to be better than everyone at a club. You're like very good. You're not a professional yet, but you're a very good player, like master. You have a ranking. You're officially recognized. You have a title. 2400 is now you're like not quite a grandmaster, but you're an international master. You're among the best in the world. Maybe 2500 maybe is among the best in the world. And then 2,800, 2,800. So just imagine a thousand points higher than me. That's like, you are the number, you know, one through three people in the world. Very few people get there ever. And right now, just to give you some comparison, the strongest computer engines in the world play at approximately a 32, 3,300 level rating. So even for the 2,800 guy, the best in the world, there's 500 more rating points achievable. Wow. So there's a whole lot more information than I was expecting, which is super, super helpful. And it just brought up a whole lot of ideas and the new questions that I can ask and how I want to start bringing this into the bigger picture. One of the things you said that I thought was really interesting is you said, and I might get the number wrong, but I think it was 2000, where you said at 2000, you're the best of any normal person. Yeah. Right. This is where the best normal people get that aren't considered masters. Was that the right number? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's about right. At 2000, you're going to be the best player in, in any club or most clubs. And you're going to be at 2000, you're an expert. Like you're going to beat any guy on the street every single time. You're never going to lose to any of your friends. You're, you're always going to win. There's a statistical that, so those numbers, um, the way that you gain rating is by beating people with that rating. And it actually, it's a, it's actually calculus. So the chances, if you're a 1500 and you play against the 1600, it means your chances of winning are 40%. And if you play a 1700, your chances of winning are 30%. If you play an 1800, it's 20%. And when there's a 400 point ranking, the different, the chances of you winning are about 5%, maybe. So when there's a thousand point difference between you're an expert and someone's a beginner, they cannot beat you. It's impossible, basically. The reason I love this is I think that there, I could equate this to looking at a creative career. You could equate it to kind of any huge goal that you have. And we're going to get a little bit more into the my, my version of chess, which is American Ninja Warrior and why I chose it and how it equates to it. But there's a certain level where I think just about everybody kind of hits that that middle area where you put in enough hours and you're good enough at what you do when you practice and you show up to work and you do a great job, there's a certain area where you're going to be successful. But then there's this other tier where it's a whole new mindset and a whole new level of dedication and skills that you have to acquire to, like you said, going from running a 10-minute mile to an eight-minute mile to a six-minute to a four-minute. It's two-minute increments in between all of those. But to go from a 10-minute mile to an eight-minute mile, just run a couple extra times a week and get in better shape and buy nice shoes and lose 10 pounds. Like it's not, it's anybody can do it if they apply enough effort and enough time to it. Eight to six, doable. But that's going to take a lot of dedication. I couldn't run a six-minute mile. Like, I'd pass out. I'd look like a chain smoker by the time I hit that six minutes, and I'd be out, like, gasping for breath. But four minutes until I don't know the exact uh, year, but it was unattainable. It was considered impossible until Roger Bannister did it. Right. And then they realized this is actually possible. And then, of course, after that, multiple people followed. But we're talking a tiny handful of human beings are able to run a four-minute mile. Yeah. And I think the same can be said of certain career paths or certain jobs that you want to get. Let, let's use editing, for example, because that's been your lifestyle and what you've done for 20 years and what I've done for 20 years, where I think that with enough time and enough dedication, anybody can become a professional editor and make a living off of it. 100% agree. Right? 100% agree. But then there's a totally different tier of projects and types of stories and challenges and frankly, politics that you also have to understand and put into the mix where there's only a very, very small percentage of people that crack through that door and break into it. And it's not just because they worked harder. It's not just because they put in more hours. It, it reaches a point of diminishing returns where it's not just about doing that. It's about having a different strategy and a different mindset. Can I, can I actually, I want to add to that because this is- Yes, please. That's why you're here. This is super related to editing. When you get, if I tell you when you start, I'm your teacher, right? Let's say I'm the best player in the world and I'm your teacher. And I say, oh, I'm going to get you to 2000. 
Like you just stick with me. I don't care who you are, what your background is, what you're, you stick with me long enough, I'll get you there, right? But the difference to go from 2,200 to 2,400, I would say this is, if I were your teacher, I would give you the same advice. I would say, drop everything else you're doing in your life, dedicate every moment of your life to this thing, and you've got a chance, but maybe. And that, that's the difference, you know? And you have to, at that level, and this is absolutely true with editing. At that level, you have to say, actually, the thing is, I love this. And, and I'm going to do it whether I get there or anywhere else or get worse. I'm going to do this because this is it. This is my passion. This is my dream. You know, there are no grandmasters who do other stuff. You know, they all, they're all, maybe they're teachers, you know, but they have to study all the time. They have to keep up with trends. Do you know there's actually trends like, Openings come into fashion and go out of fashion. I could give you the most beautiful story about that. It's about Bobby Fischer. Sure, go ahead. Okay, you guys should look this up. But basically, back in the 60s, there's this thing called the Chess Olympiad. Actually, I'm not sure 100% if this took place in the Olympiad, but there are national teams in chess. Okay, there's like the five best players from Russia faced off against the five best players from Argentina. Okay, and the Argentinian team had been practicing this, this opening, this move that they were going to do. And they researched it and studied for months, you know, and um, they showed up at the board and somehow by just miracle, all five boards got to that position, which is like, you know, crazy that that could happen. And in all five games, the Russians over the board figured out how to crack that defense. And it was considered dead. From now on, that defense was considered dead. Okay. It, they actually called the, the game the Argentinian Massacre. That was the. <laughs> so, okay. Along comes Bobby Fischer in the, like, about 10 years later. And he reaches the same position and up from the Argentinian side. And the announcer says, well, he's a great player, but what he doesn't know. He's not old enough to know the history and to know why nobody plays this opening. He chose it, but it's really, it's a mistake because, you know, because of all this thing. And Bobby Fischer uncorked something new and the game, he didn't win the game. It was a draw, but it was like a hell of a fight. And he almost pulled it off. Right. And from then on, that opening came back into fashion as people looked at it again for the first time in 10 years. And so that is happening all the time. Trends are changing, you know, nothing stays still. The game, you know, now computers can analyze positions and show you something in an opening, not on the 10th move, but on the 20th move or in one line that had been extinct for, for decades. And, you know, it, it, it's part of being great at anything is this acceptance that the world is changing, that you have to change, that you have to keep that beginner mind, you know, the whole time. It never, it can never go away because the minute you start thinking, I've memorized my openings, this is what I always do, somebody will beat you. And the funny thing about that to me is I would assume the chess just hasn't changed in hundreds or thousands of years. It's the same board. It's the same pieces. How can you have trends? Like in clothing, of course you have trends because you can invent new clothing. You can't invent a new chess piece. Hey, I'm going to start using marbles and we're going to see which square it rolls to. Like that's a trend that's new to the chess world, but to have trends and new ideas develop in a game that doesn't change to me, that's, that's just mind blowing to think that you have to constantly keep up with that. And when you equate that to either the editing world or just the creative world in general, everything's changing every day, new tools, new techniques. And this is a conversation you and I had offline before we recorded, but I had mentioned this idea that there are a lot of people that rise to a certain rank and they're good at what they do. That we're, Let's say that if, if we were going to rank them as editors on the same scale, they're 1800s, 1900s. But I believe the reason they're never going to break through 2000 is because they got really good at learning editing 10, 15, 20 years ago. And practice became permanent, but practice didn't become perfect because they just kept using the same techniques and the same muscle memory and the same habits and the same bin organization and the same tools, but they're not innovating. And I think that first of all, one of the things, and I don't know if it's, I would assume it's this way in chess, but I believe in the creative world, you have to be willing to 
innovate and try new things and learn new tools and new processes if you're going to go beyond that 2000 level in the creative world as you would in chess. And it sounds like it's the same thing in the chess world. It is. And, and it's just like what you said, like you think that the game isn't changing. I'm going to give you some examples, some really fun examples that you are going to love. As <laughs> You're going to love this. Did you know that up until the 60s, I think it was until the 60s, you used to, it used to be rude to not say out loud if you're attacking the queen. You, ha you had to say, garde la femme, which meant protect your queen when you attacked it. Earlier than that, you had to announce checkmate if it was on the board and unavoidable. You would announce checkmate several moves before it happened. Now, culturally, you could, you're not even supposed to say check in a game. If you say check, it's actually rude. You could lose half your time as, as a penalty for speaking at all during the game. So it, that's, that's a, an example of a cultural change. But actually, the game itself is changing because originally the pawns could not move two spaces on the first move. The king couldn't castle. And, you know, what's funny is now that we have systems like, say, chess.com, which records millions of games every single day, you can take data and you can say, you know, is chess a draw objectively if everyone plays the best moves? Well, what if we change the rules and say you can't castle? What's the what are the outcomes? What if we change the rule that um, pawns can capture forwards and not just diagonally? What are the outcomes? And we can take learning machines and play them against each other millions of times with very different rule variants and produce a predictable sheet. We can say, if you want less draws and more wins, you have to change the rules this way. The game is always changing. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the Topomat. The Topomat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. -O. So if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, this all sounds great, gonna be honest, I'm not really interested in actually learning the game of chess. However, I'm starting to see the merit and maybe taking a broader, bigger picture approach to my life, my goals, my career, and thinking many moves ahead. I'm not sure how to get started. And I know where I started because about three, three and a half years ago, as you know, I proclaimed the stupidest of stupid goals and said, you know what? I feel like crap right now. I took a walk around the block. It was really hard for me, especially the uphill part. I've got a killer dad bod. My diet is complete and total garbage. And I just spent the last six months in a deep, dark hole of depression. I know I'm going to be on American Ninja Warrior. That sounds like a good holiday project. I'm going to start working on that. And the way that I approached it, 
was one step at a time, one move at a time. And I'm a huge believer in drilling everything. So it wasn't a, and I think that the reason this is so important to bring up, and I want to talk about this with chess and with life in general as well. But I think most people, if not almost everyone would look at that and say, I could never do that. And you know what? I couldn't either. But there were things that I could do. And I said, you know, I know I can do at least one pull up. I can't do 20 at a time, but I can do one. And what if I learned proper pull up form and the muscles that I need to strengthen for more stability? And what are the other opposing exercises that make me better at pull ups? And then what's the next step? And I just drilled every little thing until I got good at it. And then I got better at that thing and I learned a new thing. And every week it's like, I'm good at this. Oh, crap. Here's something else I'm horrible at. Yeah. Something tells me the progression in chess is very similar. It's, it's brutal because it, you never, it's, it's very hard. First, I want to say, obviously we've been friends longer than three years. And, you know, I, when I saw you set that goal, I thought you could do it, but I didn't expect you to do it. I don't know how to describe it. I was like, yes, that could maybe like me, you know, I'm sure maybe like, I don't know, but the chance I, I would not have even given it 1%. Like I, oh, the chances are actually much. Do you want to know what the, if we're not even talking about athletic ability, <laughs> if we're just talking about the mathematical probability of saying, I want to send it an application to get on the show, give or take a hundred thousand applications. Wow. There are 400 total athletes and half of those are rookies. <laughs> Do the math. That's the mathematical probability. So I'm going to be perfectly honest. My response was the same thing. Like, I think I can do it, but no, this is never really going to happen. And then all of a sudden I get the phone call and I'm like, uh, oh, wait, really? Like I'm actually doing this? Oh, shit. and I like went into massive panic mode. Um, and now I'm super excited about it. But at the same time, I felt the same way because mathematically it just seems so improbable. But what was so important to me was not the result. It was not achieving the goal. It was everything I had to change about my life in order to get to the point where I, I could achieve it and be in that position. So I thought, if I'm going to be on the starting line, what is it going to take to earn that spot? Even if I never get on the show, what are all the side effects of me failing at this goal? Better health, more mobility, more energy. Like my life has completely changed and I haven't even been on the show. So it's not about being on the show or being on TV. Everything changed because of that goal. And I have a feeling that progressing through chess and doing all of the steps is going to teach you a lot of meta life lessons beyond the board. And that's really what I wanted to dive into. And I know that that's where you get super excited are the meta lessons that go well beyond the chessboard. I want to give you my, my Ninja Warrior story about my uh, greatest chess accomplishment which was the day I crossed 1800. So to get there, you know, you, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of years. And at one point when I was 1700, I got up to 1790, I think, or 80 or something like pretty close. And I was like, 1800 is like an inch away. And a year went by. Okay. And I go to this tournament and I'm the highest ranked person in my category. Cause it's under 1800. I'm like 1790. And I lose something like four out of six games or five out of six games. And I dropped a hundred points in one, something like that in like one tournament. And I just, if you just look at the chart, it's like a year of progress, a year of progress, all of it's gone. Just, just like that. Okay. I I don't know. Like I can't, it's hard to describe the feeling of pain. I was like, this is it. That's as good as I'm ever going to get. Like that was the pinnacle. Here I am now. A year later, another year. So this is two years now in the making. I go to the same tournament. This time I'm like 1750 and I lose the first game. Same tournament. And I just, I don't know what it was, but I just said, I will not lose again. That's it. And I like, it just will not happen. I win the second game, win the third game, win the fourth game, win the fifth game. And now I'm in the, the championship round. Okay. And this is for the money, but it has nothing. The winning has nothing to do for the money, right? I want that 1800. And in front of me is a kid who has no rating. He's from another country. Uh, he doesn't speak English. And he, it's completely unknown how good or bad he is, right? No idea. He's, he's new to the, to the uh, system. And he plays, ironically, the Queen's Gambit, which is a, an opening where white gives up a pawn in exchange for an attack. And usually black plays a little bit defensively, gives the pawn back, in order to have a more equal game. 
And I was like, oh, heck no, I'm taking the pawn. I'm keeping the pawn. I'm going to beat him with the pawn. And I'm like falling. I've got this extra pawn. I'm falling under a crushing attack. And all of a sudden he makes a mistake. Okay. He makes a mistake. And I'm like, I'm going to win. I'm going to win this. And I've got now I've got the crushing attack going and I've got the extra pawn and I'm staring at the board. And I'm like, there has to be checkmate here. It has to exist. It has to like, I know it. I know it. I know. It. And I can't find it. Okay. And then one or two moves later, all of a sudden my queen is trapped in the middle of the board. She's trapped. Okay. That's definitely, I'm going to lose in a game. Each player has a clock. And when it's your turn, your clock is going, and then you click the clock after you're moving, your opponent's clock is going. In this tournament, each side had about two hours, and after the 40th move, you get another hour. So the game could last six hours, okay? I sat for one hour, staring at the board, knowing the entire time that there was no way out, looking for a way out the whole time, just like, I will do this, I will do it, I will do it. And the kid leaned over and probably said the one English word he knew. He just, he just extended his hand and said, draw. So, and I accepted. Okay. So we ended the game in a draw and I was lost. I was in a lost position. He offered a draw because he was five or six and oh, and a draw wins him the tournament. So he was just fine with it, you know? And I accepted the draw because it was the best outcome I could ever possibly hope for. After that game, I sat alone. I actually left the tournament area and I sat alone for like an hour thinking I will never achieve 1800. It, I just can't do it for whatever reason. I can't get over that obstacle. And I got home and the next day when they published the ratings, I was 1804. <laughs> and then the, the ne after that, I could not lose. I was beaten like 1900 players. I beat an expert, like over 2000. I just felt like I was on top of the world. And it just... You know, sometimes knowledge like coalesces like that. I think it's knowledge, yes. And I think it's practice and it's experience. But here's the what I think was the deciding factor. And this is a really, really big piece that I think so many people miss with any goal, whether it's career-related, health, doesn't matter. You said one thing that was very distinct. You said, I decided I'm just going to win. Yeah. And that's bold. Right. You just decided I am not going to go to the same tournament and lose and watch my score drop. I'm going to win. I just decided it's going to happen. And it sounds crazy. And it sounds like, oh, it doesn't really work that way. But that's one of the lessons that I've learned, too. There's so much fear wrapped up in Ninja Warrior. And the fear is a little bit different because when you're on a chessboard, there's the fear of how you look and the fear of failure and the fear of losing. With Ninja Warrior, there's the fear of I'm going to fall 20 feet and I'm going to break my leg. And you're so an that, introvert, by the way. And, and oh, there's millions of people watching. Yes, I'm very <laughs> introverted. I consider myself an extreme introvert. And that's one of the, the things that I had to just decide. I, I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I'm deciding I am no longer an introvert when I'm training Ninja. And one of the deciding moments of all of my training, there are several, but probably the most distinctive one. I talked about this on a podcast uh, with this ninja, uh, I think maybe a year or two ago, we'll put a, a list in the show notes. Um, but one of the, the first months that I was training, um, I just started with research, you know, the because the, the, one of the, the barriers that people have when they want to achieve something is, well, I don't even know where to start. Right. Do you have Google? Do you have the internet? Because if you do, you no longer have any excuses. How do I train for a Ninja Warrior? Where can I train for a Ninja Warrior in Los Angeles? That was that's pretty simple, right? Found a parkour gym that was 15 minutes from my house. Didn't know it existed. As an introvert, I had to decide. I'm just going to walk in and not be introverted. And man, was that terrifying because I never do stuff like that. And on top of it, for those that don't know parkour, definitely nothing that I've ever done before, jumping off of, you know, all kinds of like 20 foot things and like bouncing around on like pipes and swinging on stuff. Definitely not anything that I have experience with, but it's also a bunch of kids. <laughs> I walk into parkour and I could be their dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. You really got to set your ego aside. But I went in one night. I had been watching a lot of Ninja Warrior just to get used to understanding the, the sports and how they do. And I was already kind of a fan anyway, which is what drove me to do it. But I saw a guy over in the corner. I'm like, oh, shit. that guy's a ninja. I recognize him. He's been on the show. And this thought came in my mind. I think I should go over and I should talk to him. Nope, nope. No, you don't, don't talk to strangers. That's scary. Don't do it. 
But I told myself, I decided I'm not going to be an introvert. So I have to be somebody different and I have to change my mindset. And I just walked over and I'm like, what are you guys working on? Oh, we're doing this move and blah, blah, blah. They might as well have been speaking Greek. No idea what they were talking about. And I said, oh, cool. You, you mind if I just mind if I try? Would you would you show me? Because I don't know how to do any of this, but I'd like to learn. And it was kind of like one of those like, who's this guy? And shouldn't you be in bed? You seem kind of old for this. But I did it anyway. And guess what? The the guy that I approached, his name is Wesley Silvestri. He's a four-time Ninja Warrior. Wow. And I've been training with him almost every weekend for the last three years. And he was what really made one of the biggest differences in me tackling things and deciding I'm just going to do it. So I would go at, whether it's climbing a rope, like there's there's a lot of stuff that I've done that if somebody were to watch, they'd be like, mm, that's not safe. You probably shouldn't be doing that. I'm like, yes, I know that. But when you get up 20 feet in the air and there's no mat below you and you know that if you fall, something's going to break, there's a switch that goes on in your brain. And I'd never experienced that before. But it was deciding... I can't be afraid right now because if I'm afraid and I let go, things are going to be really bad. Right. Because you want, well, I'm not strong enough or I'm not good enough. But when that switch goes, it doesn't matter. You figure it out. And I think maybe that was the switch that you felt where, yeah, I could read all the books and learn all the patterns. But at some point, I just have to decide I'm coming here to win. Yeah, actually taking that pawn. So in the, the opening that I always play it or did at that time is called... Um, the Slav defense or the semi-Slav, which are two variations of a similar, it's it's called the Queen's Gambit declined, meaning you just declined to take that pawn at all. And when I decided I'm going to win, I took that pawn as like a sign to myself. I was like, um, this game will be imbalanced. One of us will die. You know, I'm taking the pawn and that's either going to cost me the game or win me the game, but I'm decided on move two or whatever it was. Yeah, I think it's literally move. Yeah, it is. It's move two. I'm going for win, you know? Um, I also, you brought up something about the the Ninja Warrior that you probably didn't think about when you were, you were thinking when you're joining Ninja Warrior that you're doing it for you, you know? Like, I'm going to be a certain way. I have my goals. I'm going to get to a certain place. But what you learn along the way and what keeps you there, in my experience, with all the things that I'm passionate about is the places you go, there are people there and there's a culture there and there are heroes there and there are different aspirations there. And there's a world that you didn't know. You didn't join it for that reason. But once you experience it, you can fall in love in a way that you can only fall in love with because you intentionally join that world. Oh my God, I, you could not have hit the nail more on the head. Um, I talk to people a lot, um, kind of semi-jokingly about how I feel like I have split personalities <laughs> where the version of me that goes to a, an MPEG mixer with the Editor's Guild or an Ace event, like completely different version of me than when I go to the beach and I'm swinging on ninja rigs and the culture of those two groups. If you may, If I took all of my friends and I put them in the same room, oh my God, would that be awkward? because <laughs> they're so completely different. So it's like I have the right side of my brain, which is all the, the creativity and the editing and all the stuff that I'm doing with business. But then it meets the left side of my brain, which is just jumping into all the, the athletic stuff. And then you put those two together in the same room and man, would that be an interesting, unique mixer. But that is indeed one of the, the discoveries that I had is I thought, I just need to ask people, how do I do a better pull-up? How do I run up the warp wall? What's my footwork, right? Because I'm an introvert. I got to figure this out all by myself, but I know I need help and I need some guidance. And I ended up finding this entire culture of people that just pushed me so far beyond what I thought I was capable of, both physically and mentally, that I got to the point, I think it was maybe a year or a year and a half ago, that I thought, I don't give a shit if I get on Ninja Warrior. I don't even exactly. care about the goal anymore because I love the lifestyle that I've developed so much, but I wouldn't have found the lifestyle without having the audacity to set the goal. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. 
and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day, and that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. What I want to follow that up with, which I know is one of the the core reasons when I had said to you, I just pitched the idea. I'm like, you know what would be cool? Let's just talk about chess and the game of life. And you just sent me this big, long email. And I think this is, if it's not the core lesson or meta lesson that you pull off the board, the same that I've been pulling off the, the ninja course, it's this idea that you have to learn to be not only okay with, but you have to embrace constant failure. Do you want me to read it? Do it. Read it. Go ahead. Even for the best players, it takes years to become proficient. There is a cold, hard truth that if you only play and never review your past games or study, you will never improve. It is quite literally impossible. Plus, chess teaches kids to never give up and to lose gracefully, and above all, to take ownership of the decisions that they make. If they win, it's entirely because they won. And if they lose, it's entirely their loss. No one helps you during the game, and there is no luck in chess because you have perfect information. It sounds cold, but I actually like it when I play against kids who cry when they lose, and I've cried plenty when I've lost to them, believe me. They learn to face their fears and accept that losing leads to growth. It's like how it's not all bad when a kid feels a little pain when they're in karate class and they're sparring and they kick a board and, and their foot hurts because eventually they'll kick through the board. If that isn't a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. One of the reasons that I think it's so important to talk about this, whether it's in the context of a creative job or becoming an editor or becoming a ninja or a chess master or whatever it is, the only people that we really see and look up to are the ones that have already succeeded. Exactly. And a lot of times we think, oh, well, they're an overnight success. I can't do that. That's not me. And what I always try to do is find the story underneath the story. So when I was researching ninjas, and yes, there are a few, they're just naturally gifted. They roll out of bed and they go along the course and they're amazing. Like there are the, the very few that can do that. But the vast majority, it's all about their habits. It's all about their behaviors and the choices that they make to put in the hours after hours after hours. And when you see the highlight video for two minutes, you don't see the failures. All you see are the successes, which actually is a side note. When I put together my audition tape, it was a collection of all of my failures and all the times that I fell down. <laughs> really? It was like a minute long of just me failing over and over and over and over. But then, of course, being the film editor that I am, there was the payoff, which is me doing all the same stuff successfully. Oh, nice. Good way. So that, that was the story that I told. But I think so, so many people are afraid of the failure phase, not realizing that it's necessary and it's actually fun. Did, well, that, see, and that's the thing because so much of it is just your own perception of, of it. You know, like you probably didn't make it up the warp wall the first time, but if you ran up it and went, that was so cool. Did you see how big that wall is? I was this close. You could have that approach or you can run up it and go, that wall is huge. I will never make it. And you had the same result in the first run but one of them, you have that mindset and, you know, you can have the other mindset too. That's actually why I think kids can be so good at chess at such a young age, because 
they're literally not even, you know, they fail at everything they ever do with every, they can't, you know, say anything. They can't write anything. They can't tie their shoes. Like everything they're doing, they're failing at. They play chess. It's just another one of those things. But when you're an adult and you lose, we get this like pouty, you know, self-interested, like, well, I, this is nonsense. You know, I, if only I, you know, I don't have the money for a private trainer like this kid has. It's like, you can't go to the library and open a book, you know, but it, it's, it's all that we just come up with the mountains of excuses of why, you know, I can't, I can't get good at chess because I have a job, whatever it is, whatever, not like I broke up with my girlfriend last night and that's why I lost the game. And it's like, you could just come up with anything or you can not worry about it. You can, you can, uh, be kind to yourself and just like gentle, you know, gentle perseverance. It's funny that you bring, uh, bring that up, that idea. Um, one of the things that I tell my students is probably my biggest pet peeve and the number one excuse that it just, it literally makes me a little angry, very irritable when people use this excuse for anything. I don't have the time. Right. Oh my God. If I had a nickel every time you use that excuse and my response is always, I'm pretty sure you have the same amount of time that I do that everybody else does because time is the one equalizer. You get 24 hours a day and seven days a week, just like I do, just like Bill Gates does, just like Elon Musk does, and just like all the other people that say they don't have the time to achieve the things that they want, which brings me back to one of the core things we keep talking about, which is choices. How are you choosing to spend that time? And is it putting in the thousands of hours you need to get to the point where you can become a master? Or are you saying, well, yeah, sure, they can become masters. I could never do that. That's, that's just simply making a choice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all, all of that because there's always a reason not to do it. It's always easier not to do it. And it's not, it's not fun losing a lot, even though we can enjoy it in a way like I, I've lost to, to some kids, six, seven years old. In fact, we have this uh, joke. There was this one kid who always wore a headband and his mom always brought him uh, an orange juice during the game. So we call him like a juice boxer. That was like our derogatory <laughs> term for playing against kids. Like, oh, he's a juice boxer. But those kids, man, they put in the time. <laughs> they put in the effort. They play thousands of games. They take, they train every single day. They do it like it's homework, you know, and you could do it too. Yeah. And that, well, I think uh, on the exact, it's the same lesson, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're talking about something as physical as Ninja Warrior, the assumption is when younger people come in, of course, they're going to be better because they're more limber and they're stronger and they're faster and they're lighter. And they don't have 20 years of garbage around their waist from sitting at a computer all day long that to this day, they still can't get rid of, um, <laughs> not getting into my own personal problems. But the opposite could be said in the world of this physical sport where, oh, well, if that person's older, right? Like I shouldn't be allowing people that are older to beat me because I'm, I'm the young one. And I think one of the most important lessons I've learned from Ninja is it's not just about your biological age. It's about your mental age. Because with the, the group that I train with on a regular basis, I train every Sunday for four hours to learn wow. all this stuff. I'm the youngest one there. Wow. And I'm also the worst. I'm the worst one there. And the guys that are just crushing me are 47, 50, 57, and 62. And I always had the excuse, well, you know, I'm just getting old. Uh -huh. But it, that's not what it is. I, I'm allowing myself to get old because I can see that physically these people are more than capable of doing these things. But it's because, again, they made choices. The choices to focus on diet and mobility and recovery and consistent exercise as a habit every single day and choosing to keep doing a few more reps instead of, ah, eh, I'm tired or this kind of hurts or it's uncomfortable. So I'd rather go home and watch TV and eat crap. Right. And again, it's, it's all about these choices and decisions, which is why when we talk about this larger strategy of chess versus checkers, it's all about making that choice. You've read, or you, I'm sure you've talked about at one of your <laughs> zillion podcasts, I'm sure you've talked about, you know, there's that theory that, I mean, it's not even a theory. It is the empirical truth that, uh, humans have sort of two mindsets. One is an instantaneous reaction to something that uses a shorthand from memory, you know, memories that you've piled up over the years. And then the other is a critical mind that takes more energy to engage that we generally avoid. And when we engage it, it, it we shut down other aspects of our consciousness to focus on 
this, this one thing. And we don't like going to that place, but actually all the best stuff is kind of there and you kind of have to go to that place. That, that's, that's the big, like, that's the big item to embrace. And that's the thing I would assume that you have to experience on a consistent basis if you're going to sit at a chess table for four straight hours and strategize. Because you watch a game of chess and you're like, what are they even doing? I mean, you're, you're, you're just, you're sitting there like, this is kind of boring. People have no idea the amount of mental energy it takes to have that level of focus that consistently without breaking it. I don't know if you know this, but you actually burn hundreds of calories playing a game of chess. And at the end of a game, after like five, six hours like that, you're spent. I mean, you go to bed, you know, you're like, you're exhausted. It's not like you just hop up. Like you really have to, it's work. It's actually considered a sport. It's funny. Cause that's one of the discoveries that I made fairly early on when I was dealing with all of my health issues, both mental and physical. And I discovered that biologically the brain is only 3% of your body weight, but it burns over 20% of your calories. And that was a light bulb moment. And I'm like, that's why I feel like a truck hit me at the end of a day of editing. Cause I would just, my excuse was, well, it's not like I did anything all day, right? Like if I'm digging ditches, well, now I understand why I'm tired, but all I did was sit in a chair. Why do I feel like I just ran a marathon? It's cause my brain did and it burned all that energy. But like you said, it's, it's a really scary, hard place to get to. It's called, uh, you, some people call it flow. Some people call it being in the zone. Um, I, uh, teach it as uh, getting into a state of deep work using the term from Cal Newport. I but have, I have listened to your, to your video. I'm, I'm sure you have. Cal, <laughs> Cal's one of my spirit animals, uh-huh. but getting to that place, once you get there, it's like a drug. Right. And I'm assuming that one of the reasons that you play chess 15 to 20 times a day is because you're putting together all of these various random thoughts about your business or life, or how do I fix this problem with this software? And they're all floating around. Then it all disappears for 20 minutes during a game. And when you're done with the game, aha, I know how to fix that one problem now. That's exactly why. It's like taking a walk. It, it's, it does the same thing for my head. It clears, up, clears my thoughts because you, you sort of have to put down everything else, you know, for a minute. People think that focus is hard and it's such a mistake. Like, actually, if you watch kids play, but even myself, this is what I used to do. Okay, Misha, I got to focus. Okay, and I literally would do this. Okay, and like, don't let anything distract you, you know, pay attention. Don't get up. Don't go to the bathroom. Don't, you know, just look at the, look at it. And and actually one of the things you have to learn is it should be gentle. You you need to, you just need to set that aside. And if you get distracted, you just say to yourself, oops, I got distracted. Let's just come back and accept you will be distracted and accept that it takes, when you're learning to play chess, like, I could not have sat at the board and looked at one position for an hour like I did in that game that I ultimately, you know, had a draw. When you watch someone who's new play at like two minutes in, one minute in, they're doing this. They're looking around, they're getting up. They they literally will say, okay, so you're here to play the game. You're here to study. You're here to learn whatever it is. And they'll literally do this. Oh, I don't know what to do. So, right. But that's the whole thing. Don't not know, think, you know, like that's the whole, that's the reason you're here. But they literally have not gained the ability to focus for that long a period of time. And part of the reason is because they're working too hard. And part of the reason is the years of losing, all the losing is the minutes spent thinking and learning how to think for a longer and longer period of time and process for a for more. Which in my opinion is no different than staring at a timeline. Oh, I got to focus. I got, I have to solve this problem. How do I get the character from the left side of the room to the right side of the room? The footage doesn't line up. The director doesn't understand eye lines and camera direction. I just have to hunker down and figure it out. But like you said, it's more a matter of, it's just, it's this relaxed mindset. And of course, the first thing you have to do is eliminate all the outside bullshit, yeah, like the, the phones and the chimes and the dings and the emails, because that's a whole different world than being in a chess match, right? But at the end of the day, if you want those creative ideas to flow, you can't force it. You have to ease yourself into it. It's very much just like a, a moving mental meditation where you're, it's, it's, it's more, it's why they call it flow, exactly. right? They, they, they don't call it get into a state of brick wall. It's called a state of flow because the ideas are constantly flowing. But how many people do you know that actively learn the skill 
of how to focus. Were you taught that in college or high school? Was, were those concepts even brought up or was it just a matter of you got to power through and work as many hours as you need to to get the job done? And I'm just like, I'm, I'm so over that mentality where if you learn the meta skill of focus, all of it becomes so much more effortless because so much easier to get this stuff done. To your point, you know, mind and body are connected. That's one thing. And, and if you're spending energy and effort on trying focus, you're actually expending the energy you need to do the focusing. And if you it, what's funny, that's why flow feels easy. The hard part is getting there, but doing being in the flow is actually the easy part because you're relaxed. You're just, in the process, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things again, that I learned from Ninja is that if you're going to succeed, you have no choice, but to be in flow. That's it's, it's one of my, my favorite lines and I'm uh, going to be paraphrasing and I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't know it verbatim, uh, but of course it comes from the karate kid. I can't go through a podcast without at least mentioning Cobra Kai, the karate kid, because <laughs> I'm just that big of a nerd. But there's this line that Mr. Miyagi says in the first one where he's like, you know, uh, go on the left side of road, no do karate. Oh, that's okay. Choose right side of road. You do karate. Yes, that's okay. You choose do karate. Okay, guess so. <laughs> Squish like grape. Yeah. Right? With ninja, you're either in a state of flow and you're doing it or you're falling flat on your face and you're wet. <laughs> and they're like one of the things that I've learned, like that I've experienced on a like almost a metaphysical level is where we, we have an exercise that we do where you uh, have to do 50 continuous push-ups for time. They're called power stands, so it's not actually on the ground, so it makes it a little bit harder to do them, and you can actually get a lot deeper, so your nose can actually go deeper than your hands. Oh, because it's lifted off the ground. Because it's lifted off the ground about six inches. Okay. And the goal is that you do 50 as fast as you can. And physically, I'm thinking, my body can't do that. But when you learn how to find that flow state, I've actually done 50 push-ups continuously in 37 seconds. Wow. I felt the same way. And when I did it and I was like, how long was it? Like a minute, minute and a half. They're like, that was 37 seconds gone. Right. And then when you're climbing 20 feet in the air, like we literally climb on rafters and stupid stuff that we probably shouldn't be doing. But when you're up there, you can't think about anything else. You can't think, oh, I just, I had this fight with my coworker or, you know what? I got a late bill. Like you are all in, but even though there's a attention to it and there's a lot of strength related to it, there's also a sense of ease. Like I have to relax into this because if I don't relax into it, I'm dead meat. I've got a broken ankle in my near future. Yeah. I used to be friends with these rock climbers. I'm sure, you, you know, I don't do anything like that. So. You know, I love rock climbing. I suck at it, but I love it. Well, one of the things they, you know, they would tell me is if you're holding the wall like this, you're, you're burning all your energy standing still. You actually need to like relax and rest on your skeleton, you know, and not, don't use your muscles like that. That sounds like the same thing. It's like it, you, if you're climbing the rafters like this, you're going to burn out halfway up. Yep. And I I learned that lesson very, very quickly when I started going to climbing gyms before all the pandemic hit. I'd done uh, climbing at gyms for a couple of years um, before everything closed down. And fairly early on, and I think you and I even talked about it at this, uh, at least at one point, where climbing is essentially a physical chessboard. Because you can't just get on the wall and start grabbing holds. You have to look at the whole run. It's something called you have to figure out the beta. You have to look at the whole thing. Where does my left hand go? Well, if my left hand is here, where would my right hand be? And when does my left foot move versus my right? You have to plan the whole thing before you grab the wall, which brings us all the way back to what we were talking about, which is you have to look many steps ahead. If you have a difficult goal, specifically as we've been talking about in the creative world, where before you even show up at the board, as you said, to paraphrase, You have to do all the work before you make your first move. Exactly. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well.
One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.